be here and to continue on in our series through the book of Ephesians. We're going to do something a little bit uh, that we haven't just haven't done the last several weeks through the book of Ephesians. So I want to encourage you. We're going to, at the end of our time together, we're going to call a time out in what we've been doing. We're just going to observe communion, really participate in communion together. So uh, I just want to encourage you, if you can right now, just go ahead and hit the pause button on the video. Just go ahead and stop that and just gather up whatever you have. Uh, in my case, I happen to have a communion set with me. Go figure. Uh, but whatever will work. You know, under the current circumstance, we're just going to have to do this as informally as possible. So if you happen to have uh, some bread or crackers or even cookies, uh, God forbid, uh, I just want to encourage you to grab that, juice, water, uh, even wine, whatever you've got handy. So go ahead and take a moment, just stop the video and gather up those things, and then we'll continue on in Ephesians chapter 4. All right. Welcome to the start of Ephesians 4. We've been journeying through the book of Ephesians, Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, this profound exposition of God's great, glorious gospel. And today's section uh, is actually really small, only six verses, Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 6. Paul is writing this letter, and in these six verses, he really, really even just the first verse of chapter 4, he's going to establish uh, really the foundation of uh, the rest of the book, the next three chapters. He's writing this letter from prison. Uh, he's in prison in Rome. He's writing to the Christians at Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey. He's in chains, as he says it, because there are, at this time, really powerful people who view this gospel, this message about Christ, as a threat to their power. They're intimidated by or concerned that this message about God's grace and love being available to everyone through Jesus Christ, they're concerned that people are going to turn away from their authority and start to view Christ as who he is, the King of Kings. And so Paul, as a herald of this gospel, is now in prison in Rome, writing to the church at Ephesus, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. This is what it says. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Now remember that in the first three chapters, the first half of the book of Ephesians, Paul's letter to the Christians at Ephesus, those first three chapters are all about God's grace and blessing and mercy they're all about the inheritance we have through Christ. They're all about the adoption into God's family that we have received. All of this is the free gift of God to us, to all who would put their hope in him through Christ. And Paul says at the end of all of that, the beginning of the second section in verse four, chapter 4, he says, In light of all of that, in light of all that God has freely given you, live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Now notice how that plays out. We're simply living a life in response to what we have already received. We're not earning anything. Jesus didn't die so that we could somehow spend the rest of our lives trying to be good enough to measure up to it. 
somehow just hunker down and try not to sin until our life is over. No, no. He says, in light of all that God has given you, the salvation you have received, live a life worthy of that calling. What an incredible freedom to realize that we're the passive agents. Now we just live in response to what God has already done. Uh, If you've noticed in the world, though, uh, there's a lot of hypocrisy around us. Uh, I'm guessing you've noticed that. We just we live in a world that is full of hypocrisy. If you do just a quick online search about the subject matter, you will find no shortage of people who are digitally screaming at everyone who disagrees with them on a vast array of subjects. And here's what I find uh, really interesting about hypocrisy. It's always the other guy. It's actually what makes hypocrisy so convenient and wonderful to us, is always the other guy. It's one of the very few grievances that everyone in the world is guilty of, except you. Everyone else in the world is guilty of hypocrisy, except me, just by nature. That's how hypocrisy works. But I say we just sort of rise above the cultural shouting match for a moment and just realize that you're a hypocrite and I'm a hypocrite. We're all guilty of holding other people up to standards that we ourselves fail to uphold in our own lives. Sometimes people complain that Christians are such hypocrites, church people are such hypocrites. And to that I say, I know. I mean, we're terrible. Aren't we the worst? How awesome is it that God loves us anyway, that he sent his son to die for us anyway, that he gives us his grace and mercy and blessing, that he still wants us in his family. How awesome must God be if he looks at our sin and our ugliness and he wants us anyway? That's what our hypocrisy, our propensity toward hypocrisy should point us to. Quite often what it does is it makes us just proudly point at the people we view as worse than us to justify ourselves. But what it should do, the fact that we're all hypocrites and God loves us anyway, what it should do in our lives is make us say, How awesome is the love of God? How never-ending is the grace and mercy of God? He offers it to us in spite of our ugliness and our sinfulness. Now, to make sense out of this, to see where I'm going, let me point you back to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. This is what it says. It says, Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. God's response to our hypocrisy is to offer us not retribution, but rather love, mercy, grace, an eternal inheritance, adoption into his family. This is how God responds to our ugliness, to our sinfulness, to the hypocrisy of how we live by offering to us mercy and acceptance. If this is how God responds to our ugliness, what we ought to do is live a life worthy of what we have received. That should be our natural response in light of all that God has done, all that he has freely given us. Who wouldn't want to live a life worthy of what we've been given. Now, the great irony 
for us as followers of Christ, if, if you've said yes to Jesus, the great irony is that we are simultaneously both worthy and not worthy at the same time. As Paul said in his letter to the church at Philippi, he said, we have no righteousness of our own, but only the righteousness that God gives us through faith in Christ. That is the only righteousness that we have, the only worthiness that we have. So how is it that we live a life worthy of what we have received? How do we how do we do that? Well, John Calvin said it this way. He said, we shall never be clothed with the righteousness of Christ, except that we first know we have no righteousness on our own. We receive the righteousness of Christ by first recognizing that we don't have any righteousness of our own without him. To recognize that Christ is the source of our worth, that is the beginning of a life worthy of his death. To recognize that he is the source of our worth. John, uh, John Piper articulates, I think, articulates it about as succinctly as it can be said, I think. He said, our worthiness is seeing and savoring the one of infinite worth. Our worthiness is found when we see and savor the worthiness of Christ, to know Christ, to see him for who he is, to worship him with our lives. This is a life worthy of the calling we've received. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you, to live a life worthy of the calling you have received, to live a life of worship, to emulate Christ. Will you falter? Will you fail at times in that? Will you be caught up in the hypocrisy of believing one thing and then doing another? Yes, that will happen. But what should that do? It should drive you back to things like Ephesians 2, 5, it says, it is by grace you have been saved. If it was by your actions, you wouldn't be able to sustain it. But it's not by your actions. It's by grace. It should drive you back to places like Romans 5.8, which says, God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And right there, we begin again. Seeing Christ as the one of infinite worth from whom we draw our worthiness, living a life of worship and emulating him. Well, Paul goes on from verse one. I think we could talk about verse one all day, really. But Paul goes on to list off a few practical ways that we can both worship and emulate Christ with our attitudes and our behaviors. In verse two, he gives some instructions, some really practical stuff that we can actually go out and try to do. He says, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. The believing life is characterized by the attributes of the one in whom we believe. The believing life is characterized by the attributes of Christ 
being seen in our lives. And, and he lists off some examples. Humble, gentle, patient, bearing with one another in love, just as God has borne with us in love. Unity, peace. And he rounds out his thought by making the point that God is one. There is no inconsistency with God. There is no compartmentalization with God. If we are members of his body, the church, which we are through Christ, then there should be no inconsistency within us. We should display in our lives the, these same attributes of Christ. Ephesians 1, Ephesians 4, 1 through 6 remind us that our worthiness is not the result of what we do for God. Our worthiness, your worthiness, is the result of what God has done for you. And the natural response is to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. A life of congruence between what flows in and what flows out. And a life of congruence between the love and grace of God that we receive and the love and grace of God that flows out to the world around us. The peace of God that we receive and the peace that we give, that we display. Well, in 1 Corinthians 11, the Apostle Paul, the same Paul who wrote the book of Ephesians, he recounts the Last Supper, Jesus' last meal with his disciples before he was crucified. And he recalls the imagery of the communion elements as Jesus took the wine, the bread rather, and said, this, this represents my body which will be broken for you, my broken body, which will satisfy the penalty of death against your sin. It will satisfy the wrath of God, it will literally pay the penalty for your sin. And he took the wine and he said, this is the blood, this is my blood of the new covenant, an everlasting agreement in blood that peace has been made between the believer and God forever. And he also goes on to say that we should examine ourselves as we come to the communion table. And so today, as we not just take communion, but we participate through the act of communion, we participate in community with Christ and with Christ followers throughout the world, throughout history, the entire family of God through the act of communion. Let's examine ourselves in this moment and return to a life of congruence, a life of congruence between what God has freely given us in Christ and what flows out from us to the world around us. I want to pray with you and then we'll take together. Lord, I thank you that you see us as we are, as we truly are. You see us at our best and at our worst. You're fully aware that we have no righteousness of our own. And yet, you've freely given us your righteousness. By sending your son to die on the cross for our sins by establishing an everlasting covenant of peace between you and us through his blood. 
and by giving us your word so that we could know about it, so that we could know you and understand you. And for that, Lord, we praise you. We thank you for your body. We thank you for your promise through the covenant in blood. We pray these things through Christ and for the glory of your name. Amen. Please feel free to take. I hope you have an incredible week. Love you guys. Take care.